0: It seemed uh, appropriate uh, for all of us to get to know uh, Jamie a little uh, better. Jamie and I have a a few things in common, and uh, one of them is is he's held already my first two jobs. (laughs) 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 He's he's been an intern at Wallace and now an assistant uh, pastor. And uh, my first opportunity to meet Jamie was at the Reformation service. He organizes our area-wide Reformation service, and uh, CRPC will not be holding anything in the evening, and hopefully you will come out and enjoy that. There's always a, uh, it's a rich uh, time of uh, worship, as well as uh, an excellent uh, message brought by by someone. Hopefully it won't be ten people you go through, <laughs> 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 but I thought I thought that Fix did a fabulous job he did, he really last, did. Last, last year so I wanted to just interview Jamie and he'll he'll be a good sport about this I'm sure I have no idea, this is totally unplanned Um, (laughs) he only knows what the last question is and uh, I debated whether to give you an opportunity to ask questions maybe at the next session whoever's doing this will (laughs) invite you for audience questions so um, uh, we are curious about where you were born, and tell us about your family, siblings.
1: Yeah, I guess just to set that up, my dad is Scottish, my mom's American, and they met in Liberia. So this is just to prepare you for where this is going. Um, so I was born in Philadelphia during near the end of my father's seminary education there at Westminster. Uh, so I was about one, a little over one year old, when me and my little brother and my parents. Uh, moved to Cambridge, where my dad started his PhD, and we were there for three years. That's Cambridge in England. Uh, And then we were in Oxford church planting for three years. And then that was a very difficult call, and uh, financially did not work out. And so my dad was looking for another job. And he got one at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. So at the age of seven, I moved straight from England to Jackson, Mississippi, which was very (laughs) difficult. But, after a year there, we moved to Southern California. Uh, es- my dad began teaching Escondido, the other Westminster, and that was San Diego was a better place to be different and have a weird accent than <laughs> Mississippi was.
0: Good, and um, where do you like to go on vacation with Emily now? Where- oh
1: Well, I kind of like to see things around the world, and I could be pretty happy going almost anywhere you know. New. Uh, our honeymoon was to the Greek islands: uh, Rhodes, uh, Rhodes, Simeis, Kos, uh, uh, Leros, and, and Patmos. Okay. So yeah. So you know, but you know, Rhodes and Patmos being both in the Bible. Uh, <laughs> the other ones being too small to merit explicit mention. But we really love the Greek food, and we enjoy the fact that there's. I didn't know. I didn't actually know this when we first had the idea of going. That, but there's these like large Crusader castles all over these islands. So not only there uh, the biblical history, but there's massive castles you can climb on. And yeah, we had a great time. Okay. Great, great beaches, of course, too.
0: Okay. <laughs> and so, what do you all like to do when you aren't uh, reading for your dissertation or either of you in your jobs? What What do you guys like to do?
1: Uh, well, you know, sometimes we play with our rabbits. Um, uh, that's a pretty it's a pretty chill animal to play with. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know, hang out, watch, watch watch some shows sometimes. Uh, I like to go to museums. That's not Emily's cup of tea as much, so maybe I drag Emily to the museum. Um, but we actually really love... Um, we, we like to go to, to, to plays, especially Shakespeare. Okay. If it's Shakespeare, then we'll be there.
0: Well, you're in a great town for museums. It, no, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> not, not many in the world that have more to offer.
1: And I will say, uh, Catholic University, this next coming semester is doing a production of The Winter's Tale. Maybe one of the best like pictures of redemption in a Shakespeare play. I know I really could disagree with me. But so I know it's a, it might be a bit of a drive all the way from Laurel, but you know, it's also a student performance so it's cheaper. So. Keep keep that in mind. <laughs> so you might want to consider checking that out in like it's like I think, you know, maybe it's a February or something or April or something. Like
0: that. Well, is a very cultured group. So they, <laughs> uh, they probably You don't see the, the
1: Winter's Tale very <laughs> often, and that's what makes it a special opportunity.
0: So, um, do you read outside of your uh, work and dissertation? Not these
1: days. No. <laughs> like not for the last so, six months, maybe. So, but when, I when I I'd like to. What, what I
0: do you like to read when you're uh, not reading for work?
1: Um, I I really like to read philosophy. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm <laughs> I trying a, to find something else you can. I you know. <laughs> I, I picked a, I kind of picked up a taste for it when I was. But I have. I have friends who make me read fiction, and that's very important because I don't get around to it on my own. But, but I'm always very glad that I do.
0: All right. So um, why you've chosen a, an unusual topic for your dissertation? Yeah. So um, why don't you tell everybody what it is and why it is, or what it is about it that's attracted you?
1: Yeah, so the, the, my dissertation title is Metaphors for Nothingness in Isaiah 40 through 66. I wanted to call it a dissertation about nothing, but my advisor doesn't let me put jokes in the title. <laughs> um, but <laughs> I, I, um, it, it was a, kind of, a few things came together in picking that topic. One was that I'd been uh, talking and went on a seminar with people who were doing this new philosophy in the Bible movement, which is not just taking... Um, modern philosophy and connecting it to the Bible. Instead, it's like reading the Bible as philosophy. Um, what is the Bible itself saying in its own context about, say, knowledge, for instance? And there's a, several scholars doing this now, but nobody's doing it yet for um, in the area of ontology, like being and nothingness. But I think the Bible has things to say. So I already wanted to kind of, I thought that would be interesting to look at. And then I noticed that the, the, the several different terms for nothingness show up over and over and over again in Isaiah 40 through 66. And I thought, well, I mean, that's something, right? <laughs> if you have a section where he's talking about nothing over and over and over again, that should say something about ontology. And and, and then I went to look if anybody had written anything about it. Because that's the thing about, you know, I have friends who work in, like, <clears throat> Christian Arabic or, or, or Syriac. And what they're usually doing is a text that's never been translated into English. And they translated and analyzed the grammar for their dissertation. In the Bible people have been writing for like a thousand years. It seems like there's probably no dissertation topics left. And yet, nobody had written anything about it, really. Just some s- throwaway comments on the side and commentaries. And so I thought, well, I won't even, this is great, I won't even have to talk about what other people think. I can just dive right <laughs> in.
0: <laughs> it does has its advantages. I had my little uh, thing, I did it for my last degree. There wasn't any literature, so yeah. <laughs> sure, it's simple. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you. I wanted to have you close by telling uh, folks about your relationship with Jesus or your testimony. Sure. you How would yeah. like to describe that?
1: So, um, I, I grew up in the church. I guess yeah, just what I was uh, was what you would call a covenant child. Um, and uh, I so I mean I always heard about uh, God and the gospel, but it was actually when I, I was about five years old. I used to like to lie in bed. And just think about things after my parents had put me in bed. And around five years old, I I I, I kind of got this urge, I need to I should figure out whether I actually believe in this Jesus stuff, you know, that Jesus is real, that he died for my sins. Uh, and so I spent a long lot of time thinking about it uh, to the extent that five year old can think about such things. And I f- came to this point where it felt like puzzle the puzzle pieces just sort of clicked together. And I thought, yes, this is true. I believed this, and I prayed, and I asked God to forgive my sins, and believed in Jesus. And then the next morning, I was very excited, and I said, "Mother, you know, mom, mom, like I'm a Christian now." And I think she was like, uh, "You know, my child has found another way to get, my, get you know, get attention." <laughs> she wasn't sure. She's like, "We'll see where this goes," um, but I think it was really genuine. Um, and uh, I think from there, over the years, um, it's kind of like different parts of the gospel come through in new ways as I, as I grow. you know. Because you had a very simple understanding back then. Around when I was, say, a teenager, an idea like, no, like, God's grace really is, is free. It's actually not, your acceptance with God is not based on anything you've done. Justification is by faith alone. That, like, hit me in a new way. You know, it made sense in a new way. And, and that was kind of like another you know, revelation of what it means to actually believe in Jesus, to actually put that together in my head and, 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 and in my heart and realize what that was about. Um, and actually, I'd say another big area, and this is a little earlier, another big area for me was the struggle of of coming to America and being very isolated and having a lot of things that, that like, ways that I responded, including, like, an in anger and hatred as a child that I... You know, started to into my early teen years, recognize and like, oh, like this is sin in a new way. <laughs> like uh, I knew that I, you know, I disobeyed my parents and I got in trouble, but like now I'm really like reckoning with what is this, you know, thing in my heart, um, and repenting of that and turning away from that and, and letting go of that was like my first big, stro- you know, big struggle with, with sin that wasn't, you know, directly pr- prompted by my parents. Um, and it's kind of been more of, more of the same since then, you know, new ways that I see my sin, but also new ways that I see God's grace and new facets of who God is and what he's doing that he, he shows me as I, you know, continue on in the Christian life. Well,
0: thank you so much.
1: Okay. All right. So, session two. We talked a lot about God last evening. Um, And for this session, I want to focus on creation. Because I think sometimes the doctrine of creation is one that we can sort of leave behind. We talk a lot about sin uh, and the fall. And we talk a lot about redemption and the gospel. Um, But creation is a big thing in the Bible. And actually, understanding creation is important for those other parts of the story to make sense. Um, And another thing that makes me excited to talk about this with you today is, you know, if you're reading theologians and they talk about creation, um, it seems like they just always talk about Genesis 1, 2, and 3, which is great, like, don't get me wrong, and uh, you can see why, right? It's just right there at the beginning, it's hard not to notice, but there's actually a lot of other passages that talk about creation throughout the Bible, and I think sometimes they get sort of neglected. So I want to look at a few passages about creation um, in Isaiah 40 through 66 uh, and see what those have to teach us. Um, My objective here is to explore God's presence in creation and how it helps us see his goodness. To explore God's presence in creation and how it helps us see his goodness. Um, And I hope the coffee is starting to kick in now because I'm going to do what I did last night again and ask you to sort of get together with the people who are sitting around you and have a little discussion, and then come back and share as a group. Um, Now, your discussion topic this time is, have you ever felt like you experienced the presence of God in nature? Have you ever felt like you experienced the presence of God in nature? And how was that experience similar to or different from experiencing the presence of God in, say, reading the Bible or going to church? So that, you know, hopefully there's plenty to discuss there. So get together with the folks around you. I'll I'll just read it one more time. Have you ever felt like you experienced the presence of God in nature, and how is that similar to or different from experiencing the God, experiencing God in say reading the Bible or going to church? Okay. Go ahead and circle up. Okay. Sounds like some good conversations are happening, but for for time's sake, let's uh, reorient here. Uh, feel free to come back to these <laughs> over lunch. Uh,
0: <laughs>
1: but let me let me ask if there's anybody who's who's comfortable. Do a couple people want to br- briefly share some of the. Uh, some of the thoughts that came up in your group?
0: Yeah. Yes, go ahead. we were just talking about. Is <laughs> I don't know. We're going to be we No, go first, Mm-hmm. you really think mm-hmm.
1: about the Yeah. Right. Yeah, and we could think of Psalm twenty nine as well too, right? right. Is the you know sometimes the, the experience of God in nature is terrifying, the exactly. storm. Yeah. That's how yeah, in the middle of a storm. That's right. Somebody else want to share? Oh, do we have a
2: mic? We can Oh, yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. talked course a lot about nature. Autumn leaves and this this green of spring, as even when she was really young and how that was striking to her. Um, Carol spoke about not being able to hear, so being much more attuned to visual things um, and we s- spent some time talking about just being overwhelmed s- often in our lives by how the God who created this and I think in Genesis when it says God made that like the Hebrew word is, means from nothing it's the only time that's used in the Bible he just made it from nothing but that, that God in the end when it's our last breath it's our solitary relationship that we've been blessed to have with that you
1: know,
2: unimaginable yeah. being yeah.
1: somebody else back here I think we have time for one more we
0: can I know, yeah, when I think of nature it just came to mind like uh, you know, the fish and Peter, like, that was a natural, that was God-engaging yeah. nature, like, as a person, and the way we don't, and the calming of the storm, and the, the fig tree, and, you know, there's a million kind of interactions that, I don't yeah. know, just puzzle me, and that's not what we were talking about.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, totally. <laughs> okay, well, great observations, and please feel free to continue these discussions over lunch. Um, I think... I want to start by contrasting uh, where we're going here with a a wrong understanding we could get from the previous talk. Um, Because we talked a lot in the previous talk about God being bigger than us and about this vast distance between us and God. And if we only focused on that aspect, we might draw some wrong conclusions. For instance, if we say that we're like nothing compared to God, does that mean that God doesn't care about human beings? It would definitely be a wrong conclusion based on everything else in Isaiah 42:66. Um, and then another error is if we just only emphasize God's greatness in terms of His distance from us. Um, here's a couple. Here, I'm going to teach you a couple of like fancy theology words, and then I'm going to teach you the regular English version of them. Okay, you ready? This is this is the, people love you know these people love to throw these ones around. So, I'm ready. transcendence. Imminence. Uh, and transcendence just means God's distance, metaphorically. The greatness of his being, how different he is from us, how far away that seems. And imminence means God's closeness. So, you know, just metaphorically speaking, how far away from us God is and how close God is. But of course, these aren't really opposites. You know, in actual space, you're either far away or you're close. But something like, say, God being uh, present everywhere is like an immensity like we can't fathom, but it also means that God's like right here, right now. That God's closer to you than any other person. Um, And so I think one great way to get at this is to talk about all the language about God being present in creation uh, and God's work in creation that we also find in Isaiah. Because this language of God being bigger doesn't isn't designed to say that God is simply separate and far off and not involved in his creation. This isn't like, I think it was the pagan Roman poet Lucretius who said, well, the gods live in perfect blessedness in the gaps between the stars, and they're too busy having parties to really care about anything that happens on earth. That's not the biblical picture of who God is. Um, So that's kind of where I want to go in this session, is to, to look at creation and see how that Uh, we experience God's presence and His goodness in creation. Um, And so to start with that, I want us to look at Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45, verses 18 and 19. Feel free to turn to that in your Bibles, but I'm actually going to use my own translation, um, mostly so that I can use my own translation for nothingness words. One thing you might also mention is that I've changed the pronouns for earth back to feminine because I think the earth is a little bit personified in Isaiah. So that will have a different effect. But let me go ahead and read this, Isaiah forty-five eighteen to 19 For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made her. He established her. Not as a void did He create her. He formed her as a dwelling. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret. In the place of a dark land, I have not said to the seed of Jacob, Seek me and avoid. I, the Lord, am one who speaks truth, one who tells what is right. Okay, so that's my own translation. A little bit different than the ESV. Um, So, right off the bat here, um, we have God talking about how he created the earth. And what didn't he make the earth? He, he starts by saying how he didn't make the earth. Yeah, not empty, not of a, a void. Uh, and then what's the opposite of that? What What, is, what it is the way that he made the earth? Yeah, inhabited to be a dwelling. So we have this contrast here between the earth as sort of an uninhabitable void and then the earth that is a dwelling. Um and notice how this takes nothing, this language, and connects it to this idea of purpose—that the whole creation that God makes has has this purpose uh, that it is for. Uh, it's in order for people, people and animals to live in the earth, uh, this sort of ideal state of, of fruitfulness and abundance and uh, and uh, presence with other other people and other creatures, uh, and uh, we have, you know, contrary to that, how it could be. It could just be a void. Sort, you know, well, maybe there's stuff here, but not anything inhabitable. You know, I think sort of what physicists tell us about what the universe would look like if some of those starting constants were just slightly different. Maybe, like, comp- you know, atoms wouldn't even ever form. We wouldn't even get that far. <laughs> uh, maybe stars would, would never actually form. And how far do we have to get before we actually get like a planet that's in the z- the zone, not too far, not too close to the sun, where you can get like creatures living on it? Um, there's a lot that goes into not making the Earth to be a void. Um, and uh, this is actually also, you know, some scholars have wanted to contrast this a little bit with some Egyptian religion. Maybe because Egyptians are actually mentioned earlier on in the verse. Um, but uh, the this idea of like the void or the abyss plays a big role in Egyptian religion. Um, because this is what there originally was. There was just, for Egyptian religion, like the waters. The dark, inert waters. And then what happens? The first god sort of like comes into existence out of the waters. Um But at the same time, so in Egyptian religion, you have God actually being sort of identified with the void. Uh, And the Egyptian god Atum, his name literally means the one who is not. That's one of the ways to read it, because he's like, comes from the void. The Egyptian god Amun means, who's who's a a, a very similar god, means the one who's hidden and, and secret. And it feels like God's trying to make a contrast. Notice how he says that he didn't tell Israel, seek me in a void. God is setting up a relationship with human beings that's not about them um, coming to this place of nothingness or a void to seek him. A lot of Egyptian religion is about secrets and things that only the elite know, Uh, and things that happen in dark corners and dark rooms. And God's saying, that's not how my relationship with human beings is going to be. Um, So right off the bat, we have a sort of contrast. And now I am going to go to Genesis 1, because it is useful to talk about it. Um, This word that I've translated, void, is actually a word that is there in Genesis 1. Uh, It's the word tohu. And in Genesis 1, verse 2, we read, and this is my translation, the earth was a void in emptiness, and darkness was over the face of the deep. But the Spirit of God, or the wind, remember the same word, was hovering over the face of the waters. Um, so this sounds... Sounds like it's a very similar story to the one we were reading in Isaiah, right? Because, well, we start with a void, but we know that we're not going to end the chapter that way. You can actually look at Genesis 1 as this is the story of how God didn't create the earth as a void. It started that way, but then he shapes it into a place where human beings can live. That's the end point of Genesis 1, right? We have At the end of Genesis 1, we have all of these creatures everywhere, and then we have human beings... And we, we, we have the man, man and the woman, and what what does God tell them? What's the, what's the blessing command given to the man and the woman? Be fruitful and multiply. Yeah, we get to tend the garden in chapter two, but in chapter one, humanity is told, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, right? And so there's still this ongoing vocation to, to make things full. A um, couple questions about Genesis 1. Um where, where, where does God come from? Exactly, yeah. Okay, we, I, we read Genesis 1 every time, so we might miss how strange this is. God has no backstory. There's no, like, he doesn't create himself up, he doesn't come up out of the void. Uh, he, he, he's, he's just there, he's just always there, and he's never, never created, never comes into existence. Um, and so he doesn't sort of emerge out of it. Um, and uh, uh, furthermore, we see that he uh, is, um, uh, has, has this whole goal for what he's doing with creation. Let me ask the kids a question here. This is for specifically for the kids. and the, I'm going to ask you, this is just a pretend hypothetical, but I'm going to try to sell you a house. And you understand that buying a house is a big commitment. So what you need to think about is, do I want to buy this house or not? Yeah, it's a question. Okay. <laughs> We're going to pretend that you do. We're going to pretend you have enough money for a house. But in this pretend scenario, if you make the wrong choice, then you could be stuck with that house, and you won't have enough money to buy another one. So let me tell you about this house that I want to sell you. The first thing, it's a great house. It's a wonderful, beautiful house. First of all, it's very dark. There's no lights in the house, and it's like in a deep valley, so it never gets any sunlight. Secondly, it's very wet. Uh, There's just water everywhere all the time, and you can't get it out. It's empty, there's no furniture in the house, and there's no food of any kind in the fridge. You want the house? No. No, Okay. Good, you've, you've just made your first step towards being wise homeowners someday. <laughs> this is actually the focus of Genesis 1-2. It's like the opposite of where creation ends up, the fact that, like, human beings and other creatures can't live or survive here. Um, and this is, like, sort of the problem that God is going to fix over the course of the chapters. Um, Notice something about what this means for the concept of this sort of nothingness or emptiness. Is it a result of the fall and sin? Nope. So this is distinct from sin. Um, this is just a sort of emptiness that, that there is before God's creative action takes place. Um, let me ask a more difficult question. Um, is the no, is this sort of void this nothingness is it gone after God's done everything that he's going to do in Genesis 1 has it been completely removed? Well, Here's some different answers. Does anyone want to make, make make a bold claim and defend it? I don't know. That's a very wise answer. <laughs> okay, so the, the the earth is filled it's very different. It's very different. Adam and Eve still have some work to do, right? But Well, we can look at the kind of concrete pictures. What happened to the darkness? Okay. Is there still darkness? There is. It's li- it's limited now, right? We have darkness, we also have light, but the darkness is still there. What about the what about this watery deep that's there? The that gone now. It's separated. It's limited. It's limited. Um, okay. Here, here's here. You know, maybe you're like maybe you're having trouble following me here. But I think this helps clear it up. When we get to Revelation in the book of Revelation in chapter twenty one, does any of those? Do any of those things change? There's always light. Okay, so there's no night in Revelation 21. And there's one other thing that's also missing. Well, okay, sorry. Multiple things that are missing. But one that I'm thinking about, and I want you to guess the one I'm thinking about. (laughs) Yeah, there's no sea. So we actually see, you know, when we get to Revelation, we see a process that God has, Begun in in Genesis 1, but hasn't completely finished yet. Um, And so, you know, God's creation is good and very good in Genesis 1, but there's still, like, a plan that's yet to play out. Um, And and so even before we get to the fall, and even before we get to human sin, we already have um, sort of a destiny, a purpose that the earth is supposed to fulfill, which... Sin seems to put us completely off track for getting there. Uh, and Jesus needs to come to get us back there. But um, there's still this problem of nothingness that God needs to solve. Um, and so, you know, this, this helps us understand when God says he doesn't create the earth as a void in, in, in Isaiah 45, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's like no presence of nothingness or it's not there. Um As a matter of fact, it seems like we should look at creation <coughs> um, as uh, constantly having this dependence on God to sort of sustain it in existence, right? Because this nothingness is always there, and it's almost as if if God was sort of to like withdraw his, his creative power from the world, that I mean, maybe, you know, would the, the hills fall into the ocean? Like, it would all just sort of collapse back. Well, why might we think this? I mean, um, I'm glad that, that Tim brought up the, the duality of God and nature, that we have both God who creates all this beauty, but God's also the one who's just, uh, associated with these sort of fearful powers in nature, because that's something we see in Isaiah. Um, Isaiah 45.7, earlier in the same chapter. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So at every moment, God is active in his creation in in, in kind of both both directions, Um, both in, in blessing and yet also in judgment, in a sense, that both life and death are sort of in his hands. Again, we can sort of contrast this with pagan peoples at the time. You know, some of these functions, there might be a different God. <laughs> there might be a God who is basically benevolent and then other s- scary, dangerous, dangerous gods that you know, are almost irrational and they just destroy for no reason. But here, God is sovereign over both powers. Uh, and this comes up in a lot of judgment passages. So in Isaiah 34, um, there's a prophecy of judgment against Edom because Edom has, well, they've attacked Israel when Israel is down waited for Judah to get you know, kicked and then gone in and, and attacked them. And in Isaiah 34:11 it says, The owl and the hedgehog shall inherit it. This is talking about the cities of Edom. The owl and the hedgehog shall inherit it. The ibis and the raven will dwell in it. And he shall stretch over it the line of void and the plumstone of emptiness. This is the same vocabulary words as Genesis 1, 2. As for her nobles, there shall be nothing there they can call a kingdom, and all her officials will become nothing. So there's this sense in which God's judgment is like a decreation. You know, when, this, when a, a, a nation is turned away from God and, uh, and they've d- uh, done these acts of unjust violence towards another nation, he judges them by allowing their inhabited city to sort of return to this, you know, decreated wilderness state. Um, there are some winners, though, because like the owls and the hedgehogs have a new place to live. Um, just incidentally, we're not actually quite sure if that's the word for hedgehog. There's some debate about that, but I, I like to think that they're hedgehogs because that's kind of, kind of cute. <coughs> um, and I think we can kind of, with the strength idea as well, sort of coordinate this. You know, we, um, in Isaiah 40:30 even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. So we have certain things that we think about in creation that that are powerful, you know, and you know, young people perhaps especially. We think, you know, oh man, you know, to be you know 20 and have you know, you know, your whole body functioning perfectly, and, and you know maybe and you could think of some great athletes and think, wow, like you know that guy run you know running a marathon, how do they how do they do it? They're so powerful, um, but actually even young people get tired eventually. Uh, and I think this is a big picture for all of creation that it has this this beauty and this purpose God has given it, which is not to be this void, but to be something where there are people and uh, and they live in community with each other and there's a sort of fullness to creation but it's not something that it can just sustain itself on its own apart from God And that almost there's this tendency for it to sort of fall apart and fall back into this uh, nothingness un- uh, if God doesn't sustain it. Uh, and as a matter of fact, God even has this sort of agency in doing it. <coughs> uh, and this is something that happens especially if you align yourselves with false gods, too. That's something that shows up a lot in, uh, in Isaiah. So, for instance, Isaiah 44, 9-10. All of those who form idols are void, and the things they delight in do not profit. It is their witnesses who do not see and do not know. Therefore they shall be put to shame. Who has formed a God and molded an idol which does not profit? So we have the word profit twice there. <clears throat> um, you know, and what does it mean that an idol doesn't profit? What do you think it means? Like It doesn't accomplish anything? What sort of things do you think that they wanted the idol to accomplish? Yeah. They're not doing anything yet. Grant their yeah, grant their wishes. But, you know, what I mean, well, what do you think let's just imagine. Like imagine you're back there in first millennium BC ancient Near East. What kind of things do you think that they wish for? Rain, okay. Rain so they can have crops and you know have have the food that they need. Good health yeah okay yes good exactly very much like lots for, for children you know lots and lots and lots of religious stuff about having having kids for sure um, it's this sort of prosperity you know these kind of aspects of of life that you know make it full and rich at least you know on a certain level uh, that you have enough to eat you have children you have uh, somebody to care for you in your old age um, also, we should think of warfare, too, right? I mean, when the armies are at the gates, then that's when people are really get religious and they're trying to get, the, get deliverance, you know, help from these idols, but it's not going to come. Um, so, um, yeah, and this fits with a the theme we'll talk about a little more in our next talk, but when you align yourselves away from God, who's the one who really provides Yahweh, you know, the God, who's the one who provides uh, strength and keeps this whole... Uh, universe running, you end up uh, and you and you align yourselves along these idols who are a void. Same word. The fact that they don't profit is like they're kind of like this pre-creation state of the, the universe. They're sort of nothingness. They're like, you know, it's going to be like trying to live out in the wilderness if you follow these idols. Um, because they don't, they can't sustain life. They can't actually bring you the kind of fullness that you are hoping to get from them. And if you align your life towards these idols, then your life ends up becoming void. Um, So uh, we'll come back to that thought. But I just bring it up here in the context of creation to say you see how creation, for its fullness, is sort of dependent upon its relationship to God. And if that relationship shifts towards these void idols, then uh, you end up having creation lose its fullness. And it ends up uh, becoming void as well. Um, another thing that we see a lot in Isaiah is the spirit's role. And I definitely wanted to, t- to, to, to make sure we talk about that. Um, so do you, rem- do you remember what the word for spirit is in Hebrew? The same as? Wind. Okay, I said it a couple times, making sure we're, we're getting the metaphor here. Wind or breath? Uh, And we see it a lot in uh, Isaiah. So, for instance, back to Isaiah 40. And I think we we brought out this verse uh, last night, verses 6 to 7. All flesh... Oh, no, this is earlier. We brought out a later one. But all flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath... That is ruach, spirit, is the spirit word. When the breath of the Lord, the spirit of the Lord, blows upon it. Surely the people is grass. So here we have the spirit sort of uh, representing divine agency, divine power. Specifically, like, the power to um, uh, bring death. The fact that everything dies, and this is an agency of the spirit. Um, But it's also true the other way around. If we turn to Isaiah 42.5, we say... See, thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spreads forth the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people who walk upon it. This is one particular word, that this is the word that you find in Genesis 2 when it says that God breathes into the man and he becomes a living being. That's that word for breath. And spirit, here, this is our our spirit wind to those who walk in it. Um... And here, breath and spirit are actually sort of on the human side. They're, they're like this gift that God gives. So everything that comes to life is because God, God gives spirit or breath to uh, these creatures. Um, and Isaiah is bringing together an idea that we also find in Psalm 104, um, talking, which is a wonderful creation psalm, by the way, since we're out in nature. That's a wonderful one to read as well about God's presence in nature. Um, But it's talking about the creatures, and it says, these all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. Um, So sometimes we think of creation as something that's sort of one and done, right, at the beginning of the universe. And to a certain extent, there's a point in that. But it's not just, you know, that God sort of sets the earth, the universe like a clock and then sets it going and steps away. There's this continual presence of God by his spirit in the world. And these passages say that things that come to life and die by the presence of God's spirit and the activity of God's spirit. Um, and there's even that parallel between our spirits and God's spirits that like there's something about who God is his power, his life where in an analogous way he gives us something like that and that is how we live and that's how we thrive so what I'm trying to get across here is the sort of intimate presence to go along with like our stuff we talked about God being greater than and, and, and we're like nothing compared to him um and we're like grasshoppers compared to him. All true. But at the same time, you know, every grasshopper that's born and dies does so by the intimate presence of God's spirit with that grasshopper. You know, or Not a hair falls from our head, you know, not a sparrow falls to the ground without it being part of God's will. And so God's you know, very intimately present with creation. And all of creation is continually depending upon His power. I wanted to share my own experience here. You know, I think um, I think as Presbyterians, maybe we don't like major on mystical experience, uh, <laughs> which I think is okay. <laughs> uh, sometimes uh, not to focus too much on that. I mean, after all, um, you know, Paul has apparently some crazy mystical experience that then he refuses to tell anybody about in the New Testament. I don't know if you remember this, like, it's just really funny. So many medieval theologians spelt so much ink trying to figure out what Paul saw, but he's just like, "Yeah, I went to I went to heaven. I'm not going to tell you about it." <laughs> um, but I I, th- I think it is okay us <laughs> to share sometimes the experiences we have of of sensing God in nature. And I'm glad that we had some discussion around that. For me, it was when uh, when I was in college and I was sitting by a fountain at one point, and I just saw like all the eucalyptus trees, because this is San Diego, um, all the eucalyptus trees, the leaves, and the other trees sort of just moving. And I, could, and I sort of perceived the fact that there was, although there's like a, a, a hundred or a thousand leaves moving, that there's a pattern there. It's because the wind, which I can't see, is this moving them all in sort of one concerted pattern. And I remember Jesus' words that talk about the Holy Spirit being like the wind, in the grass, and you can't see the wind, but you can see its effects. And I suddenly had this, you know, sort of sense of like God's power—that there's all these things happening everywhere, um, but like behind them and in them all, like God is accomplishing His purposes. And it was just sort of a moment where something that I'd read before in the Bible just like sort of hit me. Um, and I think this is part of what Isaiah is trying to communicate. God's presence by his spirit, uh, moving all these sorts of things. Uh, and I think this is an important background because when we talk about the spirit's presence, we are often talking about something that happens when you believe in Jesus and become part of the church. There's a good reason for that because there's a bunch of New Testament passages that talk about that, right? It's not wrong. You know, the gift of the Holy Spirit is something that happens after Jesus ascends and sends the Holy Spirit. Um, language about the Holy Spirit's present in the church as, um, you know, the the manifold wisdom of God being expressed through a distinct manifestation of the Spirit given to every individual believer. That's what the New Testament teaches. Every individual believer has a special way that they manifest God through the Holy Spirit in the ways that he has gifted them. And this is something that, like, isn't true without Jesus (laughs) and without us having faith in Jesus. Um, But, that language is borrowing a lot from the Old Testament language about the Spirit's presence in creation. So, before and all of that, uh, it's also true that the Spirit is present just in a creational way. And that everything good that we find around us, whether among Christians or not, is a gift of the Holy Spirit. We can call it his common grace. Um, one of my favorite quotes from John Calvin is when he's explaining why we find a lot of really useful ideas in pagan authors. As much as we may find falsehood and, 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 and beliefs that go against the Bible and we need to read carefully, John Calvin it was nothing if not a, um, a, study of, a student of classical literature. Calvin's first book was actually on Cicero's On Mercy. Um, and so Calvin in the Institutes where he's talking about how we know God and how sin obstructs our knowledge of God it uh, feels like he doesn't want to go too far and say that, well, if sin structure, our knowledge of God, does that mean that there's no goodness? There's nothing, there's nothing to be gained by, uh, out in, in you know, these pagan authors. And Calvin says, no, clearly not. And so here's, here's the quote. Um, when, therefore, we discover the wonderful light of truth in the works of pagan authors, that should alert us to the fact that man's nature, though fallen from its integrity and profoundly corrupt, is nevertheless adorned with many of God's gifts. If we recognize the Spirit of God as the unique source of truth, we will not despise truth wherever it appears, unless we wish to offend God's Spirit. I find this kind of like a very interesting idea, Cal, that I could be reading you know, a, a, a non-Christian author, and I could reject something true that they're saying simply because they're non-Christian, and then I could actually be sinning against the Holy Spirit because he put it there. Um... For we cannot disparage the Spirit's gifts without attracting his contempt and reproach. Um, now, of course, this is balance, right? You know, Calvin is the first to say, these pagan authors, they can't really understand the human condition because, first, they don't really get the fall. They, they think that human beings are more powerful <laughs> than they are. They think human beings are less sinful than they are. Um, but he really wants us, he says there is a way we can... And this is hard to hold together, isn't it? The fact that we're fallen, and as Calvin says, profoundly corrupt. And yet at the same time, God still, by his Holy Spirit, is present, giving truth, giving goodness. I think in Genesis of the line of Cain, where you know there's this split where Cain's descendants seem to be very far off from the Lord. and But they invent all this cool stuff. They invent music. They invent metallurgy. <laughs> they invent cities. I don't know. I find people sometimes, you know... Some people are more urban, and some people are more rural. I don't know how you feel about cities, but they but they invent all this stuff, and then you look over at like the line of of uh, of, um, of Seth, and and what are they? in? Well, they invent praying, and that's about it. <laughs> um, like it's almost like God intentionally is giving technological gifts to the people who are like farthest. You know, and I think Paul seems to suggest almost that much when he's like, "Not many of you are worldly wise." Like, God, maybe even like God. You know, if you've seen the movie like Amadeus, where you have this guy who's just like, and I don't think he has a healthy faith, but he's like feels like he's served God, but then Mozart is this terrible person, and God made him like super musically talented, and he like can't cope with it. But like God does that, doesn't he? And I think Calvin's saying like, "Yeah, like God wants us to see our dependence upon the Holy Spirit through all of these kinds of people, and God having put good everywhere." And if we miss God's presence in creation and by common grace, then we're actually missing something that the Spirit of God is doing, um, like outside of the church and in creation. I don't say any of that to disparage the importance of the Spirit's presence in the church or work through grace. About which, you know, there's so many Bible passages. But just something that I think we'll miss <laughs> that I don't want us to. Any que- questions about that? well, maybe we can take a 15-minute break and, and come back at, I guess that will be 10, 10.55 for our next session. Now, let me close this in prayer, though. Dear Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for creating a world and making it a world that we can live in. And even as much as sin has corrupted that, um, it's still a world where, by your common grace, we have so many good gifts that you have not... Uh, uh, allowed us to uh, fall into the void, but you have provided us with good things, with, uh, with family, with friends, um, with food we can eat. Uh, and ultimately with uh, Jesus, you have come to set all things right and to restore creation and perfect and, and glorify creation in him. Uh, so we thank you for all these good gifts in Jesus' name.